Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. Third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. How, how are you doing? Sorry, I, I, I've been up. I've been, I've been, I've been just preparing for this show. I've been staying up night after night, dream, burning the midnight oil. Sure, I do that regularly at my age. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Good evening, Dr. Aaron Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside Counseling and Psychological Services or UCR School of Medicine. Well, I'm glad you all joined us, listeners, for this show because we are going to talk about cannabis and harm reduction in particular. And we are honored and uh, very happy to have as our special guest, journalist Chris Walker. Chris Walker is a writer based in Denver, Colorado, who specializes in narrative long form reporting. His work has spanned four continents, ranging from investigative journalism to arts and culture writing. Chris's stories can be found in The Atlantic, Playboy, The Atavist, Vice, Forbes, NPR, Rock and Ice, Backpacker, Westward, and LA Weekly, among others. In 2020, Chris released his first narrative podcast series, The Syndicate, which peaked at number five in Apple's top shows chart. Thanks, Chris, for joining us tonight. Thanks. I also burned the midnight oil preparing for this <laughs> podcast episode. Well, you should. I'm glad. I hope you you caught at least half of our episodes so far. Uh, I, 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 I would like to get the ball rolling with just asking, like, what? how did you dive into this topic and get interested in the topic of cannabis and just harm reduction in particular? I live in Denver, Colorado, which, as you can imagine... <laughs> And no, I did not move here in 2015 for the weed. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Colorado, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, was actually the first state to implement its recreational marijuana program. Uh, Washington State and Colorado passed it at the same time, but Colorado actually implemented it first. Uh, so we had the first legal weed, and that has transform the state in dramatic ways and it's kind of hard to uh, be a reporter here and not get into issues of cannabis because um, it kind of affects uh, so many different um, avenues here whether it's politics and or the local economy uh, schooling um, but I, I was also at a paper that was uh, primarily funded by weed ads. And so cannabis also literally supported my career um, because at the back of our alt weekly, you could find a literal book worth of weed coupons. And yet your podcast is sort of uh, doing some dirt digging on the cannabis industry. Are you, did you find that you had to have a certain um, a certain connotation to your, to your work when you were with that paper? No, I, I'm always just looking for a good story um, and a dramatic story that can teach us about bigger issues and in industries. Um, and so the story at the center of the syndicate, which is this narrative podcast series that I released last year, uh, chronicles the rise and fall of a massive marijuana smuggling operation in Colorado. Um, and, th and the quick genesis of this story is that uh, there were, the bust of this group made some waves in 2015. And there was 
some rather cinematic aspects to this group. They were using skydiving planes to traffic weed out of Colorado to surrounding states that didn't have recreational marijuana uh, and upselling it in the black market. Um, It involved a group of family members and college friends who had uh, most of them had moved from Minnesota to set up shop in, in Colorado. And most intriguingly, they did this all in plain sight by uh, posing as a legitimate above the board legal marijuana grow operation uh, while they were actually fueling the black market in uh, in surrounding states. Um, so a lot of people covered the bust of this group and there was a flashy press conference at the attorney general's office in Colorado. Um, but I, I do what's known as long form journalism and I always want to know the deeper story. So how did this group come together? You know, what were the motivations of the individual members? Did they think they could actually pull this off skydiving? Like what? Um, and so it took me a few years to start getting, uh, members of this group on the record. Um, but by 2019, I had enough buy-in uh, from former members of this criminal enterprise uh, and had earned their trust to um, tell things from their perspective and then also from the state detectives that were doggedly pursuing them and brought them down. It was interesting to see that you had access to these disposition or depositions and things like that, that I, I never occurred to me that a journalist could kind of get that and play that on the air for, I mean, I guess I've seen like major media outlets do it, but how do you, well, whatever, that's, that's a, that's a question for another time. Uh, What did the, what did doing this teach you about the larger picture of cannabis and to the extent that you can as a journalist, I know kind of you're sort of unbiased in your, you, you try to maintain a neutrality in your opinions, but what did the, where did this leave you feeling about cannabis in our country? A few things. Um, and I even use this in the tagline of the show. Uh, the black market is not just evolving in the era of legal weed. It is thriving right now. Um, there are, many opportunities that are created by the patchwork of state laws that we have in this country and the non-uniformity of cannabis laws. Um, And this group was run by some savvy operators that realized that they could take advantage of those discrepancies, take advantage of those discrepancies. Um, And the fact that Colorado was, you know, the first to really get this uh, recreational industry off the ground, but it was a lot to take on at once and regulation and oversight, you know, as much as the state wanted you to make it seem like they had it all under control. Um, this group was able to figure out where they could operate in the gray areas um, and really right underneath regulators noses. Um, and so it was a really good case in point of what not to do if you're a state that is now just legalizing recreational marijuana um, and some of the pitfalls that we have to look out for when it comes to stamping down on the illicit market. So, so I, I would, uh, okay. So I'm going to pull in Saloni a little bit here because Saloni and I were finishing on kind of a, a fun debate about harm reduction on the last cannabis episode that we had. And, and the, the question is, I, I would imagine 
even with the fact that the syndicate was pulling off this skydiving operation, you know, skydiving is better than um, MS-13 shooting people over and having these like narco submarines and stuff and all of the other kind of things we hear about the $80 billion drug trafficking industry. Even with this, would you say that harm was reduced at least from a loss of life standpoint? I think from a loss of life standpoint, you could make that case. Um, also, this organization, because they were posing as legitimate growers, um, were being inspected by both the city and the state. And so uh, unlike some of the illegal grows that you would see, for instance, up in the Emerald Triangle in California, in Humboldt and Mendocino counties, for instance, um, where... Uh, growers are using tons of pesticides um, and growing deep in the forests uh, on public lands um, or in state forests. Uh, this group had to do things by the book in Colorado, which included not using um, pesticides that had been banned by the state. Um, so I guess you could see it as harm reduction uh, from that standpoint. Um at the same time, there are all these legitimate players in the industry that are having to pay high premiums in terms of taxes, um, are having to go through lots of regulatory hoops um, to do things in the way that the state was asking them. Um, and so it undermines their business if you have people that are not playing by the rules. That's fascinating. So you're seeing this from a point of view of business equity, I think. And for me, this is entirely eclipsed by my, my I guess, feeling with this is my question that I, I can just come out, I guess, with my thesis, which is that I question if this is truly harm reduction, if by legalizing recreational use rather than just decriminalizing, we're making this harmful thing accessible to everyone, this thing that's been shown to, um, you know, increase depressive and anxiety symptoms can cause psychosis, and we're making it more available to kids. Has that been seen in Colorado, where, where, where it, it, this greater access has led to younger folks getting involved and in, uh, suffering the effects of use? I, I don't have those statistics in front of me. I mean, I, I have heard that there are not like... Um, not not like the sky is falling down um, rates of rising use among adolescents, but that there is some marked rise in use among adolescents. Um, but something you brought up, Alan, um, business equity. I mean, that's actually one of the reasons why I, I, I don't think there's actually not business equity. One of the reasons why this group started as an illicit operation um, is because they couldn't become, they couldn't easily become um, a licensed above the board operation. And part of the reason for that, and we're seeing this play out around the country, is that there are limited numbers of licenses. There are increasing numbers of big corporations that are throwing lots of money and weight behind getting these limited numbers of licenses. And so if you're just like, a group of friends or a mom and pop operation, and you're trying to snatch one of those dozens of, of new licenses for either a grow or a dispensary that open up in a new market, 
um, and you're competing against a uh, multinational or a, or a nationwide corporation with you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind them, um, it, it's it's actually not that equitable. And some states that are now getting into the cannabis game are trying to specifically carve out in their new laws that hey, we we actually want to make sure that at least a portion of these licenses go to people of color who have been, you know, for so long disproportionately targeted in the war on drugs. Uh, we want to make sure that these go to uh, locals who have been in the community, not these outside corporations. Um, but at the time that this group got started in Colorado in 2010, uh, there were there were so few licenses available already. You were having this big money issue um, and they just they couldn't do it legitimately. So they decided that, hey, we're going to fake it till we make it. Um, and if you listen to my show, they actually did try to go legitimate at one point. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the business equity is, is a huge unresolved problem right now in in the cannabis industry writ large. One of the um, kind of aspects of harm reduction is that folks will switch from alcohol to cannabis. And it's, I guess it's a little bit more interesting because Coors is such an influential player in, in politics there. What, have you, what can you say about that? Does that happen? And what, what's the role that, that the alcohol industry has played? Well, the Coors family was very against legalization. So you're right about that. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms, you know, I, I'm not so sure that there's been, I mean, Colorado is also known as being a boozy state. I mean, it's kind of just fed into, they kind of just feed into each other. I don't know there, that there's been really a supplanting of one for the other. Um, cer certainly cannabis revenues have been more profitable for the state than um, than alcohol revenues, uh, taxes on cannabis are much higher than on alcohol. Um, and so I think many communities have been, um, bullish about, you know, allowing lots of dispensaries. I know in Denver there's, um, gosh, I think at last time I counted there or last statistic I saw there was, there's over 400 grow facilities and dispensaries combined uh, in the city in, in the city of Denver alone, um, and I think money talks, and and it's not always the case if you're talking about harm reduction for uh, mental and physical health that uh, politicians are thinking of that first um, because because the money speaks volumes. And speaking to that business equity and the usefulness of the regulations, I mean, this is something that we encounter a lot with our patients in California since it's legalized. The cost of weed has gone you know, way up because of those taxes, the heavy taxes, et cetera. And a lot of my patients are still buying their weed on the street because of that reason, because they can't afford to buy it from the dispensary. It's so much, you know, it's so marked up. And so again, that begs the question, you know, what, you know, what exactly what is the use of those regulations if they end up buying outside of the legal market anyway? That is such a great point. And one of the major findings of my series um, as to why the illicit market is still thriving. Um, yes, even in legal markets, um, there's all these factors that come into play that you need to entice consumers 
to actually go to legal dispensaries. And that involves not only price competitiveness, um, because if if the price of weed from a shop is twice what it is on the street because of such high taxes, I mean, yeah, it's going to be a hard sell uh, for someone who's been going to their corner dealer for years. Um, but the other issue is access. Um, and a great example is, I, I mean, California, we, we could talk about that, but Canada is a good, you know, if we're talking about nationwide legalization, a year after they uh, legalized uh, cannabis in 2018, um, their legal market brought in roughly $1 billion as opposed to somewhere between 5 and $7 billion for the black market in Canada. Um, and part of that was because some provinces in Canada were so reluctant, um, unlike a place like Denver, uh, to, to really um, open up these licenses that uh, consumers didn't really have an outlet to, to buy weed legally. So, uh, so they continued going to the black market. So, yeah, there, there are many reasons why people would, would continue using uh, illicit sources for this substance. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking with journalist Chris Walker about cannabis and in particular harm reduction. Uh, you know, Chris, I was, you know, every time you have a bunch of like a, you're talking about a black market that that, you know, really exceeds. It sounds like just the legit market. And you have a lot of folks that are um, doing illegal activities. Has crime increased? Is that can that be seen as harm reduction uh, where or, or not, um, ha, have there been greater crimes? Are there more people put in jail? Have there been more out, uh, more uh, cannabis-related uh, offenses and that kind of thing? Yes, in some cases. Um, so I'm w- one of the more, more fascinating shifts that have happened around cannabis um, and cannabis supply in the last five years or so has been a steep drop in imported cannabis from south of the border including Mexico, uh, because cannabis used to be one of the main staple uh, trade items of the cartels um, that they would bring in. And um, U.S. Border Patrol agents, uh, I have the statistics somewhere, but um, have seen a marked drop in cannabis seizures at the southern border uh, in the last few years. Simultaneously, you're hearing about Um, cartels actually setting up their own grows within the United States, um, especially in the Emerald Triangle in California. And there's been a big spike in disappearances, murders, and any time you get that kind of violent organized crime element involved, uh, that does not bode well for the wider community. Um, So again, it speaks to these issues of how do we, even in a state like California, which has legalized recreational marijuana, um, how do we tamp down on the illicit market? And, and it, it goes to many things that Saloni was was suggesting too. You got to have price competitiveness. You got to have more regulation. Um, you, get, you have to make sure that it's available enough that someone's not going to continue um, buying weed from illicit sources and fueling um, a violent sub-community. That's really interesting. I, I think one of the things that is still sticking with me um, in terms of whether or not this is harm reduction is like what Aaron said about, oh, well, what's the possibility that people are going to move from alcohol to cannabis? I think we make this assumption that 
we're going to, we're going to legalize this. People are going to, you know, we can trust the people to be responsible where we live in a country where, where we give people liberty and then the, the state's going to profit off of it and good things are going to be done with that money. And I think what we're seeing is, I mean, with alcohol, I at least work, working as a psychiatrist, you know, I certainly don't have the perspective that there's more harm or that there's more good than harm done by the use of alcohol and, and that people are using alcohol responsibly. Um, I, I'm, I would feel kind of relieved to, if I knew that maybe there's less alcohol use um, and more cannabis use, because I feel like in terms of drugs of abuse that can really destroy a life, alcohol is the, it reigns supreme. Oh, absolutely. I mean, alcohol is, in terms of being a killer, far outstrips cannabis. Um, but I, I think when it when it comes to harm reduction also, I, I mean, I think we can kind of broaden that term also to how do we how do we reduce harm that we've already caused as a society, especially especially in the criminal justice space? So there are still forty thousand people in federal penitentiaries. Um, who are incarcerated due to marijuana charges. And this is a substance that 67% of Americans want to outright legalize. So for both medical and recreational use um, in more and more states, every election cycle come on board uh, to, to offer legal pot to citizens of, of those constituencies. Um, and yet, and yet we still incarcerate um, and still arrest and still charge three times more uh, black people than than whites, um, even in the last few years, in including in legal markets for cannabis charges. Um, it's not just like a magic switch goes off and a state like Colorado legalizes cannabis and um, you, you can't get in trouble for it anymore. Because uh, even if you're buying it legally, it's you can't use it in in public spaces, um, and, uh, and, and nothing seems to have changed in terms of who's getting nailed for smoking a joint outside on the street, you know? Um, and, and so one of the promising things that we're seeing now, and again, new states that are coming on board are doing this better than some of the, uh, initial pioneers like Colorado, but we're seeing efforts towards expungement of records for prior marijuana convictions um, because it's just it's so hypocritical that um, now something's legal and someone got busted for it before for these obscene sentences. And, um, and, and so there's programs uh, that you can apply to get your criminal records expunged if it's due to a marijuana charge um, in certain jurisdictions that have legalized cannabis. And that's not going far enough. I mean, they should be, people should be compensated for spending um, ridiculous amounts in, of time in prison for something that's now seen as a-okay, not just decriminalized, but, you know, almost celebrated. But, but I do think that's separate. I, I don't necessarily want to bundle that in with the harm reduction approach, because I think that's something that you could do regardless. You could, you could let, you could uh, uh, remedy mass incarceration and the injustices associated with it without necessarily hugely expanding the use of drugs in our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the findings that you all have uh, discussed uh, 
around harm reduction in cannabis in your in your previous episodes. Not not to go over the same territory, but I'm I'm interested if there's parallels in the reporting that I've done on, especially on this one um, smuggling operation. I think most of what we've covered is that, um, you know, basically the prevalence of use does go up after legalization and you have new or, you know, first time users cropping up after legalization. I think that's what Alan is speaking to, you know, that how much, how can it really be called harm reduction if you are creating new users? Um, so that's kind of where we landed in terms of that. Yeah. I, I mean, when it goes back to the economics too, um, you are getting these really potent strains of cannabis. Um, and then also these derivative products that are so strong um, and are unlike anything that uh, the flower generation dealt with in the sixties and seventies, and this isn't your parents' pot. Um, and so even the, the enterprise at the, at the center of the story I was looking into were developing derivative products like wax shatter um, and really just echoing what the market is doing. And, and, and that's a trend that um, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about. And, and I know there's actually some movement in Colorado because there's been no limits on potency of, of these strains. And they've actually on average gotten stronger and stronger uh, and even and the, the products are mislabeled in terms of their THC and CBD content. And, and so like one thing we recommend for many of our patients is if they're going to get CBD products to try to get them from Europe, because in Europe, there's actually strict regulations about how those are labeled. Um, what is shatter? <laughs> uh, shatter is a, is a concentrate. Um, and so it, it's, it's, uh, it's basically boiling off um, excess um, extract from the cannabis uh, or from cannabis so that you get just pure THC. And then it is uh, it's cooled usually in a tray. Um, and then it's called shatter because if you hit it with a with a device and break it up and, and all of that is so that you can put it in a pipe and smoke it. Um, it you know, it the it kind of looks like shattered crystal. And I wanted oh. to ask about that too, Chris, about the potency. That was a great point and one that I, I don't know if I could, we covered in the in the trilogy or not, but I, think we did. I did. Yeah, I did. I do. I, I was wondering, you know, using the regulations or the legalization as a way to regulate potency, because we see as psychiatrists a direct correlation with, you know, high potency THC and increased risk of psychosis increased risk of developing addiction mm. and all of that, right? So we could use that as an avenue to do that. But my question for you was even before the legalization and like, you know, making this a very capitalist sort of enterprise, weren't we seeing like an increase in the potency anyway over the past 30 years as people were breeding, you know, more and more potent strains because that's what people wanted was more of the high? Yes, that is correct. Um, even Even in the underground economy, uh, there was more of a focus on quote unquote premium bud um, because before you had kind of this general um, dichotomy between swag or brickweed or kind of this really low quality, typically earthy, um, low THC weed grown below the U.S. southern border. And this is what was coming in. Um, and, and, you know, that was kind of like the the staple of what you would smoke in high school in the nineties. And, um, you know, there, 
there wasn't really types of weed. You weren't saying like, hey, are you are we going to smoke indica or sativa or like sour diesel or OG Kush or all this stuff? It was like, hey, do you have any weed? <laughs> and weed was just whatever the guy on the street corner had. But then in the late 90s, you really had this development of this subculture where uh, underground growers, including in California, were, were growing these very potent strains and becoming much more educated and sophisticated on and what these different strains did. And, um, and consumers followed. I mean, they also became more educated on um, like, hey, we actually... We want to know a thing or two about the weed we're buying, and and actually we want this strain and not that strain. Um, and certainly, uh, the medical marijuana market, which first started in California in 1996 and um, spread to various states, um, also paved the way for the retail market, uh, or sorry, recreational market, um, being ready to pounce on um, on those strains that had kind of seen that whole growth development process. And that is going to do it tonight on here on Let's Get Psyched. We've been talking to journalist Chris Walker about cannabis and in particular harm reduction. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thanks. If you want to learn more about Chris's current and upcoming projects, you can navigate to chrisallenwalker.com. Allen is A-L-L-A-N. Thank you also to our co-hosts. Doctors Toshi Yamaguchi, Saloni Singh, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com, and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>